We were on our way to Florida. It was the day after Thanksgiving. I don't exactly remember how old the kids were, but we, uh, we took off Thanksgiving afternoon, drove partway, and uh, stayed in a motel and got up the next day to continue that trip. And we have three kids, and so they were in the back of the van, and I don't know, we'd probably been on the road 10 hours, and Joshua had this way of just sort of irritating his sisters, and and I had about had it, and I, I can remember pulling over, turning around and saying, if you do that one more time, enough is enough, I'm going to kill you. I'm, I'm sure you've never done that. I don't think, have you ever threatened your kids you're going to kill them? I mean, you know. Or I, I, I remember telling him one time he was irritating them, and he was just, he wasn't hitting them this time, he was sort of saying things to them were mean, and I remember saying, Joshua, if you say that one more time, I am going to duct tape you. And he, he reminds me of those things even today. And uh, we were the other night, we were over to babysit the boys, and uh, on the way out he said, no duct taping the kids tonight, Dad. I always hate when he reminds me, you know, some things go on forever to haunt you in life that you say. But I'm sure we've all been in those situations in life where we've just said, enough is enough. Do you ever think God gets there when working with us? Enough is enough. What we're going to see today where God uses Elijah to come to Ahab and Jezebel and say, enough is enough. I've had it with you. This is what's going to happen. God was tired of their sin and He was going to deal with it. When we think of this word sin this morning, you'll notice there in your notes, and then look at your notes this morning, how do you define sin? I hope you have a pencil or a writing utensil this morning and uh, find one in the pew or, or borrow one from somebody around you, but I want you to write some things down today. So I want you to take a pen or a pencil, and I want, you, I want to give you a minute just to define sin. So Wright said, how do you define sin? Would you do that just for a moment? Everybody take a writing utensil, whatever it is, a pencil or a pen, or prick your finger and use your blood. But do something to write there today. On there, how do you define sin? What is your definition of sin? Go ahead and take a, a moment to do that. I'm going to give you a chance to do that this morning. How do you define sin? Write your definition of sin down. What is your definition of sin? You don't have anything to write with? Think about it. How do you define sin? I remember being taught a simple definition of sin is missing the mark. God is the bullseye of holiness, and we miss that mark of holiness, so it's missing the mark. But let me give you this morning, maybe you've written your definition, let me let me give you what I think is a pretty good biblical definition of sin this morning. So we're going to put it up there on the screen. Here is the definition of sin. Sin is any deliberate action, attitude, or thought that goes against God. Sin is any deliberate action, attitude, or thought that goes against God. 
action, an attitude, or a thought that goes against God. When we think of sin, we, we, can, we can break it down into two categories, really. We can, we can think of the sins of commission. Those are sins that we commit. Maybe it's a bad attitude. Maybe it's for kids, it's hitting someone. Maybe it's for an adult saying something that you shouldn't have said. Uh, maybe it's acting towards someone a way that you shouldn't act. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Uh, maybe it's a bad attitude. Maybe it's like we're going to see here in the Bible this morning with uh, um, Namath. Maybe it's pouting. You're a powder when you don't get your way. You said, I didn't know that was a sin. Yeah, we're going to see it is a sin. Maybe it's the sin of pride. But there's these sins of commission. But then there's the sins of omission. The sins of omission. That's when there's things that we should do, but we don't do them. Like we should be spending time reading God's love letter to us, and we don't do that. That's a sin. When we don't spend time talking to God in prayer, that's a sin. That's the sin of omission. These are things that we should have done, but we don't do them. Sins of omission. Maybe it's, you know you should be sharing the Gospel with someone, but you don't do it. So, sins of commission, sins of omission. Sin is any deliberate action, attitude, or thought that goes against God. We can put those into two categories. Sins of commission, sins of omission. Now, the third question this morning here is, what sins are you struggling with? I want you to write them down. I want you to jot them down there. I have some things written down that, that I'm struggling with, sin that I am struggling with. And so I I've took some time as I was working through this outline. I wrote those down this week. Things, what, what sins are you presently struggling with? Take a moment and write them there. I think it's important to do that. Important to be honest with God about what sin are we really struggling with. It's important that we're honest and open with it. What, what is it that you're struggling with? Is it a bad attitude? Is it the sin of pride? Sin of covetousness? Of stealing? So, oh, I'm not, I don't steal. How about you high schoolers here who take tests and you've looked at somebody else's paper while you're taking a test? That's called stealing. So whatever it is, write it down. Be honest. While you're doing that, open your Bibles to the portion that was read to us this morning. We're going to look at this, the story, first of all, where God says enough is enough, and he uses the prophet that we've been studying these last weeks, Elijah, to bring that message to Naboth and Jezebel. I want us to look at this story this morning and think about it for a few minutes. It's a great story and teaches us some interesting things I think that we need to learn about dealing with sin. It says, Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard. 
So Ahab, the king that we've been looking at, this wicked king, that's what he is, he's wicked. He has this piece of property, this vineyard that he wants. He's been lusting after it. He's been wanting it for some time. And he knows this man, Naboth, owns it. So he goes to him and says, hey, I want your land. I want your vineyard. I want these vegetable gardens and these grapes. I, I really want this and I'm, I'm willing to pay you for it or I'm even willing to trade you for it. You know, we'll work out some kind of deal. I'll, I'll, you give me this land and I'll give you some other land or I'll just outright give you money for it. Whatever you want, the king wants your land. And so there's this interesting desire here by Namath to have this piece of property. It's not like he doesn't already have a lot of property. He has a lot of property, but he has his eye on this one piece of property. And he goes and says, after this Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it. And so what does Naboth, what's his response? I don't want to sell my vineyard. He said, this is an inheritance, and I want to be able to pass this down. In verse 3, he says, listen, I, I don't think, but Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And so, so his answer here, Naboth's answer to King Ahab is what? I don't want to sell my property. I'm sorry. I don't want to sell it. I'm not interested. I got it as an inheritance. I want to pass it on as an inheritance. So I'm not interested. So what's the king's response? I love the king's response here. He what? He pouts. He's like a little kid. He goes and lays on his bed, and literally in the Hebrew, it says he puts his face to the wall, and he pouts. Reminds me of a little child. Have you ever seen your children pout? You tell them, no, you can't have that, and they go to their bedroom, and they lay with their face against the wall, and they're pouting. It's cute when kids do it, but adults do it sometimes too, don't we? We don't get our way, and so we decide, I'm going to pout. And that's what the king does. He's pouting with his face against the wall. It's verse 4, it says, And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he said, I'll not give you the inheritance. And he lay down on his bed and turned his face and wouldn't eat no food. Well, if I can't have it, I'm just not going to eat. I'm going to starve to death till I get what I want. But then there's Queen Jezebel, this wicked, wicked woman, who comes and asks, why are you pouting? What, what's going on here? What's going on here, Ahab? Why are you pouting? Came to him there in verse 8, but Jezebel's wife came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? Why aren't you showing up? You know, we have food. Why aren't you showing up at dinner and lunch? And well, what's going on? And, you know, and he says, It's because he won't sell me the vineyard. That's why. Jezebel, I believe thinks that he is pretty wimpy. He's pretty weak. And so she said, you know what? You should be able to have this vineyard. I'll, I'm going to get you this vineyard. 
Verse 7, and Jezebel's wife said to him, do you now, do you not govern Israel? Aren't you the king? Shouldn't you just be able to take it if you want it? What's wrong with you? Come on, grow up. Get up and eat. Let your heart be cheerful. We'll deal with this. I'll take care of it. I'll put a plan together. And so she has a plan in verses 7 through 15 where she throws a banquet and she invites uh, Naboth to come and she has some pretty evil men who put false charges against him and they take him outside of the city and they stone him. Pretty wicked woman, isn't she? Verse 15, as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab rose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. So now he's what? He's not pouting anymore. He is happy because he got what he wanted. He got his way. He got his way. So he's very happy now. But God's not happy. God finally, with Jezebel and with, with Ahab, this wicked king, finally says enough is enough. And we've watched through this story time after time as they have, in a sense, shook their finger in the face of God and said, you know what? I'm going to live my life the way I want. I'm going to do what I want. I don't really don't care about you, God. We're going to worship other gods. We don't care about God, Yahweh. We're going to do what we want. And finally, God got to the point with him and said, hey, enough is enough. I've had it. And so he sends the prophet Elijah to pronounce judgment. And we find that in verses 17 through 24, where, he show, where Elijah shows up and he goes down and God's told him what to say. He says, thus says the Lord, here's what you're going to say. Have you killed and also taken possession? And you say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. And so he goes, and in verse 20, he shows up. Here's what there says. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. That's an interesting phrase there. You have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. You ought to underline that phrase, you have sold yourself. In the Hebrew, in the original, it means you have habitually sinned. You've done the same thing over and over and over again. You have habitually sinned. And maybe you're sitting there this morning, and when you looked at that, what you wrote earlier, there is an habitual pattern of sin in your life that never ends. And that's basically what God says here. Listen, I'm tired of this habitual practice of sin that you just don't deal with. That you know it's there, that you don't pay any attention to it, that you don't try to overcome it, you just let it stay there. And that's what he's saying. What's what he's saying? It's not this thing of where he fell. The Bible says, just men fall. It says that in Proverbs. Just men fall seven times. But what do they do? They get up and they try again. You know, when 
growing up in wrestling, one of the things in wrestling was this. Often in wrestling, you would get taken down, but the moment you got taken down, you know what you would immediately do? You would do everything you could to get up again. And I can remember wrestling in matches where I would wrestle this one guy who went on to play for the Dallas Cowboys, and he killed me, but he never pinned me. He took me down, I think, 10 or 12 times, but he'd take me down and I'd get up. And he'd take me down and I'd get up. And you know what? That's what the Christian life is like a lot. It's we get taken down, but we don't stay there. We do what? We fight to get up. We fight to get up. And the problem here is he's saying, listen, you're not fighting against sin. You've got this habitual pattern of sin, and you just let it stay there. You don't want to deal with it. And that's why God comes and says, listen, enough is enough. Behold, I'm going to bring disaster into your life. In fact, the dogs are going to lick your blood. The dogs are going to lick the blood of your wife also. That's the judgment that God pronounces upon Ahab and Jezebel. And in verses 25 through 27, Ahab repents. He says in verse 25, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And so God says in his writing, he said, Listen, this guy is pretty bad. He acted abominably in going after idols. Whole life was about going after idols, and his, his wife incited him. She encouraged him to do these things. She did those things. So he was pretty bad, wasn't he? But you know, we serve a God of grace. We serve a God of mercy. If we're willing to turn from our sin and repent, he's willing to forgive us. And that's exactly what happens here in verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishpite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? And you ought to underline the word humbled. The word humbled. He humbled himself before me. It says in the book of James, chapter 5, God rejects the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so he humbled himself. Because he'd humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his day, but in his son's day will I bring the disaster upon his house. God said, listen, I'm going to spare him. I'm going to give mercy to him. There, there, there's the principle that's gone into the life. It's called the principle of sowing and reaping. What we sow, we reap. And, and, and though God is going to hold back the disaster, God is going to let him reap because in the next chapter... He does die in battle, and the dogs do lick his blood out of his chariot. We'll not take the time you can read there in chapter 22 and find that out. And when you get into 2 Kings chapter 9, you'll find that the death, death of Jezebel, you will find that she was incapable of remorse or repentance, and you'll find where the dog, she falls off a wall, and the dogs literally eat her. So this prophecy that Elijah comes and gives comes true. Even though God, in a sense, gives grace in the very fabric of life, in the very fabric of sin, 
there's still the sowing and reaping. Though God gives grace, there's still, in a sense, we pay for our sin. So when we think about this sin, sin is a pretty horrible thing. So what are we going to do with it? So take your Bibles this morning, and for these last ten minutes, let me talk about what we're going to do with sin, or what we need to do with it. So take your Bibles and go to the book of 1 John. And I want to show you this morning the solution. I've given you the story, and let me give you the solution to what we need to do with sin that is in our life. And there's really three things. The first solution that often we run to, and is probably the worst of the solutions, is we cover it up. We act like it's not even there. I can cover it up. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sin shall not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes it shall find mercy. God says, listen, I don't want you to cover over your sin. I want you to admit it. I want you to say it's there. I want you to deal with it. And so how do we deal with sin when we cover it up? 1 John gives us some examples. Look at 1 John verse 6. It says, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So he says, listen, if I'm walking in light and say that I have no sin, I am what? I am lying to myself. So on that first side of the paper, when it said, what sins are you struggling with? And you sat there and you said, well, I really can't think of any sin. I don't think I'm too bad. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself. Because listen, walking in this human flesh, battling this flesh every day, there's not one person sitting here, including me, including Pastor John, who does not have sin that we struggle with. Paul writes all about it in the book of Romans, doesn't he? He says, who's going to deliver me from this? struggle who's going to deliver me from this struggle the things i don't want to do i end up doing them the things i don't want to do i i do them he's saying i'm struggling paul is saying who's going to deliver me he's saying i am struggling with sin and so what we do is we lie to ourselves if we say that we're not sinners and you know what that's what a lot of christians do they lie to themselves i've shared often and I'm certainly not proud of it. I'm not proud of it at all, but it's an illustration of how we lie. When I was pastor, associate pastor out in Pittsburgh, I, I had taken some money from the church. When I went to buy stuff for our youth activities, I, I had said in my mind that they weren't paying me enough, so I would buy bread and milk with the church credit card, and I had done that several times, and I had said in my mind it was okay because they weren't paying me enough. And I did that for a year. And so Life Action Ministries came to our church and I sat through one week of revival meetings listening night after night to Dale Faisenfeld preach and God saying to Dick Vaughn, you are a thief, you are a thief, you are a thief. And I'd say, well, not really, not really, God. They're not paying me enough. They're not paying me enough, God. I'm not a thief. Seven nights I sat there listening and God said, you're a thief. And I argued with him and said, no, God. I was lying to myself. 
we lie to others, we lie to ourselves, and in verse, I'm sorry, reverse that, we lie to others, then we lie to ourselves, in verse 8, and then we lie, to, we make God a liar. We make God a liar. Look what it says there in verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. His Word isn't working in us is what that's saying there. And, and you know what? That's what I was doing. I, I was calling God a liar. God was saying, you're a thief. And I was saying, no, I'm not. You're lying, God. You're lying. I'm not a thief. I'm okay, God. See, what did I want to do? I wanted to cover it up because in my mind what I was saying is, you know, boy, if I go and I confess this and I make this right with the church, I'll get fired. I was more worried about my reputation than God's reputation. And when we cover up sin, that's what we do. We, more, we worry more about our reputation than God's reputation. And often we want to cover up sin instead of dealing with it. You know what I hate? I hate the alarm clock. How many of you love the alarm clock? Is there anybody here? I hate that thing. 5.30, mine goes off every morning. One of the greatest inventions for the alarm clock is the snooze. And I, I don't even have to hardly wake up. I just hear the alarm and I can just roll over and touch it. Isn't it great? And it goes off, what, 10 minutes later and I can just touch it again. Some of us, that's what we're doing. We're sitting in our pews. God is saying, wake up, wake up, wake up. We're hitting the snooze button. Wake up, wake up, wake up. We're hitting the snooze button. See, Jezebel, Nahab, they, they didn't want to wake up. They wanted to cover up their sin. So finally God said, enough is enough, wake up. And Jezebel never did wake up. Ahab did. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're trying to cover your sin, then listen, you're still asleep in your sin. And God's saying, wake up, wake up, wake up. Enough is enough. So what do I need to do? And here's what we need to do with sin. We need to do what it says here in verse 9. It says, if we what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what do I need to do? I need to confess my sin. It means to speak the same. It means to agree with God. It means to acknowledge my sin. You know what some of us like to do with our sin? Some of us like to do this. I often tell my wife, wouldn't it be much more convenient if when you go shopping on, on Saturday morning and you bring all the groceries home, just bring them all in and we'll put them on the counter. You know, all the bags. We'll line up all six bags on the counter. And then what I'll do is I'll just stand over the groceries and say, Lord, bless all this food we're going to eat this week. Amen. Man, isn't that, then I wouldn't have to pray at every meal. Isn't that a good idea? I mean, just isn't that much more simple? I mean, just bless it all at one time. That's sort of what we like to do when we get to the end of the day and we say, well, God, as I look over the day, you know what? I think I've sinned. So, Lord, forgive me for all my sin today. Amen. Out. That's how we deal with our sin, and we think that's confession of sin. No, it means I agree with God about my sin. 
It meant for me coming to that point where I agreed with God and said, yes, Dick Vaughn is a thief. And so I walked the aisle and I confessed it. I stood before the church and asked for their forgiveness and asked them to forgive me. And then I made restitution and paid back everything that I owed them. Over the next year it took me to pay that back, but that's part of it, confessing a restitution. And so listen, it was confessing, it's agreeing with God. It wasn't for me to say, well, you know, I, 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 I think I took a little bit of money. No, it was, it was agreeing with God that I was a thief and admitting that. That's what confession is. And it's acknowledging my need. It's not this praying over all my sin at the end of the day. It is as I go throughout the day saying, you know what, I've sinned against you, God, and you alone. Will you forgive me for that wrong thought that I just had? God, would you forgive me for saying something that I should not have said? And it's throughout the day confessing my sin. That's what dealing with sin is. It's not waiting till the end of the week or the end of the day. As soon as it happens, it means I confess my sin. And the great thing is He is immediately faithful and just to forgive us. And you know what? Here's the exciting thing. The Holy Spirit who lives within us desires us to be close to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So when we're a Christian and we're trying to do what's right, the Holy Spirit is constantly going to be bringing to us and convicting us of our sin. If you're sitting here this morning and you sin and you sin and you sin and you have no conviction about it, you better make sure that you're saved. So, well, that's not a very nice thing to say, Dick. No, that's reality. Because when you get saved and the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us, at that moment of salvation, He is there not only to comfort us, but to convict us of sin. And so when I sin, He convicts me and I want to get it right. Do I get it right right away? Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I want to lie to myself and say it's okay. And I want to lie to God and say, you know, it's really not there, God. No. I don't think you really understand, God. I don't think you're seeing my attitude in the right way, God. And the Holy Spirit saying your attitude's not right, and I'm trying to say why it is okay. But God, don't you know how they treated me? You know, they said it first, God. No, God said, no, it's you. It's your attitude. You need to deal with it. So it's confession. And, and, and it says when forgiveness, and God, what? He forgives us and cleanses us. He pardons us. He puts our sin as far as the east is from the west. He wipes it away. I, I love the Etch-a-Sketch. Don't you love the Etch-a-Sketch? You, you can do all kinds of things, and you can make all kinds of mistakes, and then you just take it and what? Shake it, and it's what? It's gone. That's what God does with your sin. He takes it, and he what? He shakes it, and you look at it. Wow, God, it's clean. When I confess my sin, he takes it and shakes it, and covers it with his blood, and washes it away. What it means to pardon me, he washes it away. He just doesn't cover it, he washes it away with his blood. And then he says, then he, then he says listen, I can conquer my sin. My little children, I'm writing these things in, in chapter 2 to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the world. And by this we know that we, that we can come to Him if we keep His commandments. 
Whosoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He says, listen, I can conquer my sin. Confession without repentance is just an announcement. It's just not a matter of confessing my sin, saying I'm wrong. It's what? It's making that restitution and repentance. And here's what it is. It's I'm going this direction and saying, God, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? Will you forgive me? I make repentance and I turn. Repentance means to turn and go what? The other direction. That's what conquering sin means. It means confessing and repentance. Confession without repentance is just an announcement of sin. That's all it is. Confession without change brings confusion. When I read God's word, God sent Jesus Christ not only to die on the cross for my sins so that I might be able to spend eternity with him, but he died on the cross for my sins that I might be able to have abundant life right now. That I might be able to have victory over sin right now. That I might be able to what? Repent of my sins to change from it. I certainly don't agree with everything Alcoholics Anonymous does, but I do like the thought of this. They always tell people who are working through their addictions that you must change people, places, and things. If you're going to have victory over alcohol, if you're going to have victory, you've got to do three things. You've got to change the people you run with, the places you go, and the things you do. I love that because you know what, Christians, let me tell you, if we're going to have victory over some of the addictive habits of sin that we have, we're going to have to do those same things. That's what repentance is. That's what change is. That means, listen, you might not be able to hang around with the same people that you used to hang around with. It means that, you know what, you might, may, might not be able to do some of the things. I had a really good preacher friend in uh, New Jersey who was an avid softball player, and we used to play Solid Rock Baptist Church in, in, in softball. And I can still remember the day that I was up to bat, and I hit a ball. And I ran down the first baseline, because I, I got a hit off this preacher who was pitching, and as I ran down the first baseline, it wasn't the right thing to say, but I did say as I was running, I told you I was going to get a hit off of you. And I got to first base, and he dropped his glove, and he came towards me. This is a preacher coming after another assistant pastor. And I didn't know what to think. I didn't have a glove to drop. I, just, I did, seriously. I am not a fighter. I am a lover. So I just kept running past first base because he was running towards me. And he stopped and he thought a minute, what, what have I done? And I was wrong and I apologized. And, you know, he said, you know, this just brought out something to me, Dick. He said, you know what, until I can play baseball and play it with the right attitude and play it to bring glory to God, I'm not going to play it. You know, he didn't play for the next two years. And when he came back two years later and started playing again, he was a totally different person. He still played to win, but he played with the right attitude. And, you know, he, he had to give up softball. And it could be music. Because maybe music ties you. I had a man who came to Christ in our church, played in a rock band. And, and for a while, he, he just had to give up music. He, he, he couldn't play the radio because it took him back 
to the drugs and it took him back to the sexual things that he had done and the immorality and the impurities that he had been involved in. And he just, he had to stay away from music for a while because it was those things sent him right back to that sin. And so what does it mean to conquer sin? Sometimes it means, it does mean repentance. It means a change of direction. It means giving up people, places, and things. For the what? So we can be victorious in our walk with God. More than anything, Pastor John and I desire for you as our desire is for us to be victorious Christians. We're, we're, none of us are going to be perfect this side of heaven. If you think Pastor John and I are going to be perfect, you got it all wrong. Listen, there's, some, there's going to be some times I guarantee you that our attitudes aren't going to be right, that we're going to struggle with sin, that we're going to maybe say something to you that we shouldn't say or do something that we shouldn't do. We'll try not to punch you or do anything like that. But, you know, the reality of it is this. Listen to me. We're going to sin. You said you're standing up there as the pastor of this church, and now you're telling us after we voted you in that you're going to sin. We wouldn't have voted you in if we knew that. No, it's reality. I sinned this week. I sinned this week. I did not listen to God. I was walking across the parking lot this week. I had, a, I had a pocket full of tracks. I had just given it out to a young lady. And I'm walking across this parking lot back towards the deal with this young lady that I had been dealing with. And there was a man with all tattoos. He was tattooed all over his body sitting in front of this motel. And God said, you need to give him a track. And you know what I said is, God, man, I've got to get back to this person I'm dealing with. And God said, you should give him a track. And, and I had all these stupid excuses of why I didn't give that man a track. And you know what one of them was? This is so dumb. He's got tattoos. Isn't that not ridiculous? Yeah, it is. But that's how low sometimes I'll stoop. And I sinned against God. I was directly disobedient. And all week, in fact, I went back the next day and knocked on the door of that motel and handed that guy a track because I was disobedient the day before. Oh, listen to me. Sin is a horrible thing. It separates us from God. And God loves us and He's full of grace and He's full of mercy, but He's saying, wake up, wake up, wake up, enough is enough. That's how he used Elijah in our story today to tell King Ahab and Jezebel, enough, enough. We pray this morning. Would you bow your heads in prayer with our heads bowed and eyes closed? You wrote some things out there this morning, hopefully some sin that you're dealing with. And maybe today God is, the alarm is going off and you just keep hitting the snooze bar. God's saying, wake up, wake up, wake up. Deal with your sin. Would you do it? Would you confess it? Would you repent of it and turn? Would you make restitution? Maybe you need to go back to somebody and make something right or pay back something. I don't know, God. God will tell you what is right because the Holy Spirit wants you to be right with Him. It's not about your reputation. It's about the reputation of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Father, this morning, may you speak to our hearts. May you work in our hearts. Father, help us to be obedient. Lord, we can have victory. And even those times, even like in my life this week where I was disobedient, Lord, 
we can, we can go back and we can still make things right because God, the amazing thing about you is you are full of grace and you are full of mercy, even as Bonnie sang this morning in her song, Father. You're waiting. You're, you're waiting for us to come running back to you and, and confessing it and then you're there to help us, Lord, repent and turn. And, and, and Lord, we don't have to do this in our own strength. You've given us the Holy Spirit to live within us to help us to be victorious. So Lord, help us to say enough is enough. Help us to take some steps this week to be those victorious Christians by constantly throughout the day confessing sin, constantly throughout the day taking those steps that we need to take to repent, to turn from. Whatever the people, the places, and things that we need to do away with in our life, Help us to do those practical steps this week so that we can be men and women who are becoming more and more like you, Christ. It's in the name of Christ we pray.